Jesus, proclaimed that the victorious Lord would surely return to vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. Revelation is also a book of warning. Things are not as they should be in his church. So Christ calls the members to commit themselves to live in righteousness. Although Jesus gave this revelation to John nearly 2,000 years ago, it still stands as a comfort as we understand John's vision of hope. Christ will return to rescue his people and settle accounts with all who defy him. We continue our study of Revelation after our Christmas break in Lesson 11, which covers chapters 15 and 16. So I'm going to give you a lightning round review of what we've studied so far. Revelation is a prophetic book concerning the events of the last days. The name comes from the Greek term apocalypsis. This is where we get the word apocalypse, a word that has come to mean annihilation or destruction, but its original meaning was unveiling or disclosure the invisible forces and spiritual powers at work in the world and in the heavenly realms are revealed. Although unseen, these powers control future events and realities. The human author is John, the beloved apostle, who was the son of Zebedee and the brother of James, another disciple called by Jesus as one of the 12. John was exiled to Patmos, in 94 AD, and Revelation is believed to have been written between 94 and 96 AD when John was near the end of his life. All right, here come the chapters. Revelation 1 introduced Jesus Christ, giving a vivid description of him as priest, judge, and king, identifying his role for the rest of the book. Revelation 2 and 3 told us about the church, the body of Christ, and instruction from Christ to the church as to how they are to live for him, whether that is in the first century or today. Revelation 4, the heavenly scene, pictures a holy God, and this sets the stage for the rest of the book, which focuses on the holy justice of God and is carried out by Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 is all about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one to be worshipped, and the only one who can break the seals, which then sets in motion the end-time events and the return of Christ. Revelation 6 tells us about Jesus, the Lamb, breaking seals 1 through 6, which are depicting different events, the four horses of the apocalypse, the souls of all who have been martyred, praying, crying out for the Lord's judgment. A great earthquake, the sun darkened and the moon becoming red as blood, and the stars of the sky falling to the earth, the sky being rolled up and taken away, and the disappearance of all mountains and islands. It is seal six that signals the end of this present evil age. Revelation 7, between seals 6 and 7, speaks about both Jews and Christians, the sealing of the 144,000 Jews, and the great multitude from every nation, 
tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, praising and worshiping God and the Lamb. Revelation 8 and 9 speaks of Christ breaking seal 7, resulting in the blowing of trumpets 1 through 6. These trumpets speak of God's wrath, the day of the Lord, his judgment of unbelievers on planet Earth. Revelation 10 and 11 tells us about Christ's return to Earth for the Jews, the two witnesses for Christ, and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, in which time the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 and 13 tells us about Satan and the Antichrist, Christ's enemies and their war against him, and the Jews and Christians, and Christ's victory over his enemies. Revelation 14 summarizes Christ's work in the end times. It speaks of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, with 144,000 redeemed Jews. It tells us about angels preaching the gospel of Christ. It tells us about Christ the reaper, harvesting believers from the earth. It tells us about his judgment of the unbelievers and how they will be tormented with fire in the presence of Christ. That, ladies, brings us to the beginning of our continuing study of the book of Revelation. Chapters 15 and 16 present the outpouring of God's wrath upon Christ, excuse me, before Christ's return. That wrath is expressed by the effects of the seventh trumpet, which are the seven bowl judgments. Revelation 15 depicts the tribulation saints who have overcome the beast. They sing songs of praise, celebrating God's infinite power, perfect sovereignty, and eternal faithfulness. It also introduces the seven angels who are given the task of pouring out seven bowls of wrath, God's final judgments at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Through all of this, we are reminded that though the power of evil is great, God's plan and purposes will triumph, and Jesus will be crowned King and Lord. Chapter 16, the mighty voice of the, of the temple commands the seven angels to pour out the contents of their bowls. The martyrs under the altar of God had asked how long, and now their cry would be answered. Each of the angels has a specific target for the contents of their bowl. The peoples of the earth have already suffered from the seal and trumpet judgments, but these final series of judgments will climax God's plan, leading to Babylon's fall and Jesus Christ's return to earth. The angels are carrying shallow saucers, not deeper bowls, so their contents are dumped all at once, not gradually poured out. The angels respond immediately to God's command. The first bowl results in malignant, horrible sores breaking out on all who have the mark of the beast, bringing unrelieved physical torment. The second bowl is poured into the sea, turning it to blood and causing every living thing in it to die. The third bowl was poured into the rivers and springs and they also became blood. The fourth bowl is poured upon the sun, causing searing heat exceeding anything in human experience that will scorch men so severely that it will seem that the atmosphere is on fire. 
The fifth bowl is poured on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom is plunged into darkness. The cumulative effect of festering sores, bloody oceans, no drinking water, scorching heat, and complete darkness brings unbearable misery. Yet John notes that even though they nod their tongues because of their excruciating pain, they still refused to repent and believe. This is the last reference to their unwillingness to repent. The first five bowls were God's final call to repentance. Sinners ignored the call and are now deeply rooted in their unbelief. The sixth bowl is poured on the Euphrates River and it dried up. Now nothing can hold back the invading armies of the east who are seduced to align themselves against the armies of the Lord by three evil spirits coming from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The seventh bowl is poured into the air and a loud voice came from the throne of God in the temple. It is finished. There will be flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, the most powerful earthquake to ever strike the earth, one so severe that the earth will be reconfigured. Those who escape the devastation caused by the earthquake will be pelted with huge hailstones weighing 75 to 100 pounds. Beginning in chapter 17, John describes the Lamb's step-by-step -step victory over Satan and his kingdom. In chapter 17, the religious system is judged. In chapter 18, the political and economic system falls victim. Finally, in chapters 19 and 20, the Lord himself, re himself returns to earth, judges Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, and then establishes his millennial kingdom. The ending of the book of Revelation is as breathtaking and awesome as the beginning. When the smoke clears following God's final judgment of the wicked, earth as we know it will no longer exist. John records in chapters 21 and 22 the astounding revelation of the city of God and the beginning of our eternal existence. God will create a new universe to be the eternal dwelling of all the redeemed. Revelation begins with the words of Jesus to the seven churches and concludes with his promise that he is coming soon. Let our heartfelt prayer be the same as John's. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Okay, drink of water. On to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a man who sought answers. Troubled by what he observed, he asked difficult questions. These questions weren't merely intellectual exercises or bitter, or bitter complaints. Habakkuk saw a dying world, and it broke his heart. Why is there evil in the world? Why do the wicked seem to be winning? He boldly and confidently took his complaints directly to God, and God answered with an avalanche of proof and prediction. Habakkuk is one of the shortest books of Scripture, yet it contains important truth none of us can afford to overlook. Brief as this book is, 
It is directly referred to or quotations made from it several times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was particularly partial to it, finding in it the inspired authority for the fundamental doctrine of justification by faith, found in chapter 2, verse 4, and the certainty of judgment to come upon all who reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about the Lord Jesus Christ. Though Habakkuk's prophecy is located before Zephaniah's in the Bible, Habakkuk was probably the last prophet to minister before the Babylonian captivity of Judah, the last messenger God sent to turn his people back. Through him, God revealed to them the judgment he brought, yet he also gave them a simple truth to hope in. The righteous shall live by their faith. That's found in chapter 2, verse 4. Little is known personally about the prophet himself. Jewish tradition asserts that he was from the tribe of Simeon, and he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. We have no record of his birth or his death. It is thought that he remained in the land when most of the people were carried away by the triumphant armies of Nebuchadnezzar. The mention of the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians in chapter 1, verse 6, suggests a late 7th century B.C. date for the writing of this prophecy. Shortly before Nebuchadnezzar began his military march toward Jerusalem, According to John MacArthur, Habakkuk's lament in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, which reads, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to, to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. May reflect a time period shortly after the death of King Josiah in 609 BC, days in which the godly king's reforms were quickly overturned by his successor, Jehoiakim. These opening verses reveal a historical situation similar to the days of Amos and Micah. Justice had essentially disappeared from the land, and violence and wickedness were prevalent, existing unchecked. In the midst of those dark days, Habakkuk cried out for divine intervention. The form of the book is that of a dialogue. Habakkuk, oppressed by the violence and corruption he saw around him, pours out his heart to God, who in grace answers the cry of his servant. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, gives Habakkuk's complaint. Verses 5 through 11 are the Lord's answer. In verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk fervently objects to the idea that Judah's coming punishment would be at the hands of the Babylonians, a nation more wicked by far than Judah ever dreamt of being. In chapter 2, the Lord begins to speak, telling Habakkuk to write his answer plainly so that all will see and understand. 
It may seem as though the wicked triumph, but eventually they will be judged and righteousness will prevail. Judgment may not come quickly, but it will come. God's answers fill chapter 2. Then Habakkuk concludes his book with a prayer of triumph, with questions answered and a new understanding of God's power and love. Habakkuk rejoices in who God is and in what he will do. Chapter 3, verses 18 through 19 say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He will make me as sure-footed as a deer and bring me safely over the mountains. While Habakkuk's primary application is to Israel and Babylon in the dark days following the death of Josiah, this book contains important principles applicable to the Lord's people today. We read the profound questions that Habakkuk boldly brings to God and remember that we can also bring our complaints and inquiries to him. That God should meet the longing cry of the prophet's heart brings us encouragement. The parallels between the dark time in Israel's history and the world we live in today are self-evident. But God, my two favorite words in scripture, God is still in control of the world despite the apparent triumph of evil. Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3 verse 2 can be our prayer. I have heard all about you, Lord, and I am filled with awe by the amazing things you have done. In this time of our deep need, begin again to help us as you did in years gone by. Show us your power to save us, and in your anger, remember your mercy. All right, we have one more. Our final study will be the book of Micah. The casual use of such words as love and hate in our society today has emptied them of their meaning. We no longer understand statements that describe a loving God who hates sin. So we picture God as gentle and kind, some sort of cosmic pushover, and our concept of what he hates is tempered by our misconceptions and wishful thinking. The words of the prophets stand in stark contrast to such misconceptions. God's hatred is real, burning, consuming, and destroying. He hates sin, and, and he stands as the righteous judge, ready to mete out judge punishment to all who defy his rule. God's love is also real so real that he sent his son, our, our Messiah, to save and accept judgment in the sinner's place. Love and hate are together, both unending, irresistible, and unfathomable. Micah represents this true picture of God, the almighty God who hates sin, yet loves the sinner. Much of the book is devoted to describing God's judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, and on all the earth. This judgment will come because of the sins and rebellion of Israel and Judah. Chapter 1, verse 5. 
He lists their sins, including fraud, chapter 2, verse 2, theft, verse 8, greed, verse 9, debauchery, verse 11, oppression, chapter 3, verse 3, hypocrisy, verse 4, heresy, verse 5, injustice, verse 9, extortion and lying, chapter 6, verse 12, and murder, chapter 7, verse 2, among other offenses. In the midst of this overwhelming prediction of destruction, Micah gives hope and consolation because he also describes God's love. The truth is that judgment comes after countless opportunities to repent, to turn back to worship and obedience, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Chapter 6, verse 8. And God promises to deliver the small minority who has continued to follow him. The first verse of the book establishes Micah as the author. Little else is known about him. We know nothing of his parentage, but his name, which means who is like the Lord, may suggest that he came from a godly home. We are also told that he came from Moresheth, located in the foothills of Judah, approximately 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem on the border of Judah and Philistia near Gath. That was a productive agricultural area. Like the prophet Amos, he was a country resident removed from the national politics and religion, yet chosen by God to deliver a message of judgment to the people of Jerusalem. He had a deep compassion for the poor and a courageous spirit and spoke boldly concerning the moral corruption, hypocritical religious practices, and political suppression of his day. Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, probably between 735 and 710 B.C., his indictment of social justices, injustices rather, and religious corruption mirror the theme of Amos and of his contemporaries, Hosea in the north and Isaiah in the south. The economic prosperity and the absence of international crisis experienced during the reign of Jeroboam II, during which the borders of Judah and Israel rivaled those of David and Solomon, were slipping away. The northern kingdom, Israel, was about to fall to Assyria. During the, king, the reign of King Uzziah, Judah became very prosperous. Along with prosperity came social, political, and religious corruption. Uzziah was succeeded by his son, Jotham, who turned out to be a good king, but he failed to cleanse Judah of its idolatry. Outward prosperity was only a facade, masking rampant social corruption and religious apostasy. Worship of the Canaanite fertility god Baal was increasingly integrated with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Upon Uzziah's death, Ahaz became the king of Judah. He was extremely wicked and practiced Baal worship causing the integration of these evil practices to reach epidemic proportions. 
When Samaria, the capital of Israel, fell, thousands of refugees swarmed into Judah, bringing their evil religious practices with them. Before its fall, an alliance between Israel and Syria threatened to topple Ahaz because he refused to join them to oppose Tilgath-Pileser III, king of Assyria. Instead, Asa joined Tilgath-Pileser to overthrow the coalition of Syria and Israel. This was, a, this was a bad move because in the process, Judah became a vassal to Assyria and required King Ahaz to pay tremendous tribute. Upon Ahaz's death, Hezekiah took the throne of Judah and proved to be one of the best kings in the nation's history. While Hezekiah ruled, Sargon II ruled Assyria and manifested extreme cruelty towards those nations under his control. He was succeeded by Sennacherib. Judah, along with other nations, revolted against Assyria, prompting Sennacherib to invade Judah. Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrian army. Through the king, though the kingdom's destruction seemed inevitable, God supernaturally delivered Judah from these forces. While Micah addressed the issue of religious apostasy within Judah, it was the disintegration of personal and social values where he centered his most stinging rebukes. Although Hezekiah brought religious reforms to Judah, their worship of God was merely an outward show to acquire divine favor. Idolatry and even human sacrifice continued throughout the land. Judah's prophets and priests were corrupt, hiring out their services to the highest bidder. The rich rulers oppressed the poor morally and socially, the, in violation of the Tenth Commandment, they confiscated land that was to be a permanent possession of the poor. The rulers perverted justice and practiced gross injustice. Judges took bribes and businessmen cheated their clients. The social, moral, and religious scene could be summed up with, your enemies will be right in your own household. Chapter 7, verse 6. Micah proclaimed a message of judgment to a people persistently chasing after evil. His prophecy is arranged in three oracles, each beginning with the warning to listen, found in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. Within each oracle, he moves from doom to hope. Doom because they have broken God's law, and hope because of God's unchanging covenant with his people. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised with an oath to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. Chapter 7, verse 20. A third of the book targets the sins of his people. Another third locks, looks at the punishment of God to come. And a final third promises hope for the faithful after the judgment. Micah couples the certainty of divine judgment for sin with God's enduring commitment to his covenant promises. God must and will judge sin. 
And he has an absolute commitment to his covenant through the remnant, the remnant of his people. The truth of these two absolutes clearly discloses the character of our sovereign God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Through divine intervention, he will bring about both judgment on sinners and blessing on those who repent. During the time of Micah's prophesying to Judah, Assyria was the dominant power and a constant threat to Judah. So his prediction that Babylon, then under Assyrian rule, would conquer Judah and carry their people into captivity seemed a remote possibility. Yet this is one of a number of Micah's predictions that have been fulfilled. The fulfilled ones include the destruction of Samaria, found in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Assyrian invasion of Judah, chapter 1, verse 9 and 16, destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 7, verse 13, Babylonian captivity, chapter 4, verse 10, return and restoration of Judah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 and 13, and chapter 7, verses 11 and 14, and the Messiah's tribe, birthplace, and eternality, found in chapter 5, verse 2. Michael also prophesied the Messiah's future reign, which has yet to be fulfilled, found in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and chapter 4, verses 1 and 7. As we read and study Micah, we will be able to catch a glimpse of God's anger in action as he judges and punishes sin, and also be able to see his love in action as he offers eternal life to all who repent and believe, determined to join the faithful remnant of God's people who live according to his will. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these studies, Habakkuk, the end of Revelation, Habakkuk, and Micah. I just pray, Lord, that you'll keep us faithful to study your word. Lord, keep us coming back each week so that we may learn and, uh, and be obedient to your word. Amen. All right, ladies.